The Word became flesh from John chapter 1 verses 14 to 18. Out of all the Christmases that uh, we have been able to celebrate, and it's got up to 57 for me, um, some you remember them, some you don't, but uh, I'm sure this one will be one to remember. And just when everybody was uh, starting to relax and think that we have overcome the worst, another outbreak and people again on, on edge. As a result, it's been difficult to plan things, all the plans that we had for Christmas, the number of people, and the type of things that we can and can't do. We've, we're having to adjust things at the, at the last minute. <clears throat> for those of us who are born overseas, this is normal everyday life, adjusting to the circumstances because things change. You're watching something or your family together and suddenly the electricity is off. What do we do now? Well, can't just stop. We continue. Move on. We do something else. Let's use something else to cook with. This is everyday life. For most of the world, life is very unpredictable, even without a pandemic. I heard a, uh, I don't know whether I told you the story, but I heard a, uh, somebody who was in, in the Congo recently and they, they, the question was asked, how, how are people living with the pandemic in the Congo, in Africa? And his answer was, well, they got four pandemics running at the same time, so COVID doesn't actually register at the moment. That's life. That's life. But spare a thought for those who have the luxury of planning, of looking ahead and making plans and everything, even months in advance. The year 2020 has certainly demonstrated that even though we have many plans, the only one who decides is God. And in this regard, God has been announcing the coming of his son into the world since Genesis chapter 3. Yet from our human perspective, it just didn't seem all that well organised, does it? As you look at the story. The wise men, they didn't know where they were going and had to ask for directions and ended up in the wrong place. For if you were an event planner or for maximum exposure into the world, that this is a big event, for maximum exposure, you would not waste an angelic, majestic choir with perfect pitch, perfect singing, perfect sound. You wouldn't waste that on some humble shepherds out in the fields. And surely the censors of the Roman Empire could have been done in a more opportune, convenient time, especially considering how heavily pregnant this woman was, called Mary. And even then, somebody should have, somebody should have made the booking at the inn. You didn't book it? No, I didn't book it. I told you to do it. No, sorry. My mistake. 
No mother wants to deliver a baby, let alone the Son of God, in a stable. Surely we could have done better than that. Let's face it, God is not there to make our lives more convenient and more comfortable. I know we've been spoiled. I know that we have we love our comfort and our creature comforts and all that. But God is not there to make our lives more convenient, more comfortable. If he didn't do this for his own son, what makes you, what makes me so special? But despite how things might appear on the surface, in his providence, God is bringing together his plans for his purposes. Despite how disorganised it looks, it's actually everything is working together for his glory. As Paul said in Galatians, he said in Galatians chapter 4 verse 4, but when the, when the set time had fully come, when the time was perfect, in all of history, since the beginning of history, when the time was, had fully come, it was fully perfect, God sent his son, born of a woman, born, it was never law. And it was never going to be a walk in the park when the Son of God left his throne in the heavenly realms to be born in a manger. And this Christmas morning, I want to share with you the steps, the descending steps, or more appropriately, the, the, even the, the, the condescension, how he left his throne on high to come down to our level to be born in a manger. The first step, and this is at the top of the ladder, God is invisible, verse 18 of John chapter 1, verse 18. We start, work our way backwards here. And it says here, no one has ever seen God. God is invisible. The statement is clear, no one has ever seen God. And the Bible actually says to us, no one has ever seen God and lived because of his holiness, because of who he is. If we can actually see him as such, he would not be God. We start with this very, very important truth. And this poses an intellectual and spiritual problem for us humans. Because on the one hand, this aspect of God's nature gives non-believers an excuse. And the excuse is, and you want me to believe in something I cannot see? Really? Well, you think I'm an idiot? It doesn't make sense to deny that which you cannot see either. It's the same approach that Yuri Gagarin, the first Soviet cosmonaut, in 1961, when uh, he was the first one to go into orbit. And this is what he said in space. He says, "Uh, I don't see any God out here, 1961. I don't see any God out here. In 1962, the following year, John Glenn was the first American to orbit the earth and he said, and I quote, to look up, to look out at this kind of creation and not believe in God is to me impossible. So what eyes are you going to look through? 
which confirms, which confirms what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, invisible qualities, his eternal power, <clears throat> divine nature, and he says, have been clearly seen, being understood from that what has been made. So that people are without excuse. The invisible God made visible things and the more you study it, the more you look at it, where you look at the, at the macro, at the size of the universe, or you look at the micro, you look and, and peer into a cell and its structures and the proteins and how a cell is formed together, the macro or the micro, you get lost in it. You get lost in the wonder of the arrangement of God's creation. This is the top of the step. Let's go down. Secondly, the law prepared us. In verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. In order for sinful man, ever since the garden, man has rejected God's rule over him and therefore sin entered the world. Now how on earth were we supposed to survive with one another? Men, women, how do we relate to one another? And then how are we able to relate to God? How are we supposed to do that in a sinful world? Well, God gave us the law so that we could at least survive without killing one another or try to. And it tells us, the law tells us what we can and cannot do. It regulates our relationships. For a start, uh, I mean, a simple ten, one of the Ten Commandments, you shall, not, you shall not murder. That's a pretty easy one, isn't it? Shall not lie. And it goes on. But it, it regulates our relationships, the way we get along. But as someone said, there is a problem. That the law is the light that reveals how dirty the room is. That's what the law does. It shines the light on how dirty the room is. But the law is not the broom that sweeps it clean. It simply highlights the problem. And no matter how much we might try, we cannot clean ourselves up. For that, we need a perfect saviour. And our saviour Jesus, it's not as if he suddenly stepped into a vacuum out of nowhere. He just, this baby appeared through the law out of nowhere. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself through the prophets and through the law of Moses, way before he revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and, and as we said, there was a long preparation that started in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and led all the way to Calvary and an empty tomb. So, so before the reality of the embodiment or the incarnation of Jesus, there was a witness to that reality it came through the law of Moses and the prophets. This law was preparing us. A bit like a school teacher, isn't it? It was preparing us, building the expectation that there was something, or better still, there was someone much better still 
to come. And all of this was pointing in the direction of, as we sung, Jesus Messiah. Name above all names. Who was coming into the world and heaven came down, broke into our world. And then the New Testament writers, looking back after this momentous event, they looked back and quoted passage after passage from the New Testament. They told us from the Old Testament and told us how it all fitted, it all pointed towards Jesus. Perfectly fulfilled the law and the prophets. The law prepared us. And in verse 14, verse 14, the third point is God became human. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Verse, uh, putting this verse together with John chapter 1, verse 1. It means, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. It means that if the Word was God and the Word became flesh, then God became flesh. God became human in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, there's an interesting word here that is used in the original language, in the, in the Greek, that is used for the word for Dwelling. The word for dwelling here is the word that is used uh, for setting up a tent or pitching a tent. Now this doesn't necessarily mean a a temporary status. Uh, Pitching a tent with us implies that God wants us to be on relational terms. He wants us to be in relational terms with him being very close. He wants interaction. As you travel through our state or some of us who were born overseas, uh, you see you might drive through a humble community, a village or a... You know, people live their normal lives and then out of nowhere, usually on top of a hill or left or right, you're going to see this humongous mansion that somebody built. It's just so different to everything else that is in the countryside. And you know, wow, and the question is, I wonder who lives there. Oh, they must have a lot of mullah, a lot of money to be able to build that, right? Because it's so different to everything else. And, And so if you move into a community and build a huge mansion with high walls and security guards. It sends a message, not only of wealth and power, but also one of separation. Because everybody in the the village says, oh yeah, they they sort of come out of their condominium or their, their, their big compound every now and then, but they don't really want to mingle with the people. They want that separation. They want their privacy. But if, let's change that a little bit. If you come into my community and you, and you pitch a tent in my backyard, 
you'll probably use my bathroom and eat at my table and you'll be part of the family. You're moving in. This is why Jesus was not born in a palace, in a mansion. He was born in a manger. And this is why he, in Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 says, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He didn't want to be separate. He came to pitch his tent in our human backyard so that we would have greater interaction with him. God became accessible, approachable, human, vulnerable. He knew hunger. He bled. He died. We could actually injure him and we actually killed him. Let me share a true story. Joseph Damien was a a Belgian Catholic missionary in the uh, 19th century who ministered to people with leprosy about 150 years ago on the island of Molokai in Hawaii. Uh, And those suffering there grew to love him and, and revered the sacrificial life that he lived out before them. But even he did not know the price that he would have to pay for ministering to the lepers. One morning before he was to lead them in their daily worship, he was pouring some hot water into a cup when the water spilled out and fell onto his bare foot. It took, it, it took him a moment to, to realise that he had not felt any sensation at all. And gripped by fear of what this would mean, he poured out some more boiling water in the same spot on his foot. No feeling whatsoever. And Damien immediately knew what had happened. And that that morning as he walked tearfully to deliver his sermon, no one at first noticed the difference in his opening line because he normally began every sermon with my fellow believers and that morning he began with my fellow lepers. In a much greater measure, Jesus came into our world knowing exactly what it would cost him. And this is why he said in John 18:37, "This for this I came into the world. For this I came. Number four, in Jesus we see God, verse 14. He says here, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember that our original problem was that God is invisible and no one has seen him. But in Jesus we behold God, the very glory of God. And this is the ultimate in revelation because in Jesus we see God. You might have noticed that for the first uh, <clears throat> for the first couple of months of pregnancy, um, to see the evidence of conception or the, to see the evidence that a woman is actually pregnant is a little bit difficult. 
Obviously, there is, they do blood tests and they have confirmation that way. But nowadays, with the aid of ultrasound, we are able to see more clearly and in most instances you can actually even detect the, the sex of the baby. In a way, the screen is a live picture. It confirms something that you couldn't see before. But that is actually someone who is actually alive, yet not outwardly visible in the dark about God. He has gone beyond the letter of the law or even beyond the images of ultrasound. He has actually come and pitched his tent in our backyard and calls us to know him in the person, the person of the Son, Jesus. And when you watch, when you watch Jesus in action, you watch God in action. You want to see Jesus? You want to see God? Look at Jesus. You want to see Jesus? Look at God? Both. Same thing. And he says here, full of grace and truth. Those two words, grace and truth. In Jesus, God reveals his truth. That is, he is real. He is more real than what you can see or touch or feel. In in everything, everything points to him. Because all of this, everything that you see around us is only temporary. Eventually, this building is going to be demolished. Eventually, you and I will no longer be here. This reality, what we call reality, will disappear. But God is real. He is more real than anything. He is before the creation of the world. He will be there after the creation of the world. Because God is is complete reality in the complete sense of the word. Jesus revealed the truth of God in himself. That's why he said, I am the truth. He's not a set of ideas. He's not a set of philosophies or good practices or even traditions. The complete embodiment of truth itself. The thing is that truth in and of its own can be a little bit distant, isn't it? A bit dry, a uh, bit hard to understand. And, and even people say today, well, that's your truth and I have my own truth and, and, and so on. But, you know, there is another aspect that makes Jesus, that's why he says, uh, full of grace and truth. And that's that word again. In Jesus, God reveals his grace. God is overflowing lavish in his goodness to sinful creatures. This is loving grace. It reveals the fullness of his deity through the freedom of his grace. He is, because God is, is full, he is complete in himself, he doesn't need anybody else. And, and of that fullness, he overflows with love and grace. And yet, out of, out of that fullness, he is overflowing with infinite grace and mercy. It spills over. This is why John says, we saw his glory full of grace and truth. Both of them together. 
And lastly, God came to bless, verse 16. And from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. To me, this is, this is one of the great verses in Scripture. And um, I, I need to come back to this verse because even when I, you know, we all like to complain about our lot, about, uh, you know, situations don't work out, our plans, our finances, our health. This past year, and it will be the following year as well, when you're given to, to complain, just come back to this verse and, and remind yourself, just pinch yourself and say, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another, after another, after another. You want to forget how truly blessed you are? Well, you're going to live a very miserable life, aren't you? A winger. Entitled, right? Stand back a bit. Wake up and smell the roses. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Keeps rolling on. God doesn't want to fill your head with knowledge about his truth. Yes, you can do that. And he didn't just want to actually just show you his grace. He wants you to receive it and experience it. This cup of God's grace is overflowing. It's spilling over. Because God's grace is extravagant. And if you haven't been able to see God's hand of blessing in your life, it's because you simply haven't been looking hard enough. Either that or you have a very different opinion of what a blessing is. Right? The Father gave us this present. For God so loved the world that he gave. And this present is a child on Christmas Day, his very son. And if he gives you this present, he wants you to open it. Don't spurn it. Don't spurn this opportunity. Only God knows how many more opportunities you're going to get to actually listen to his message of grace. He wants you to not just believe in a set of ideas, but to build your life on the foundation of this truth, to have a relationship with him. And so my prayer um, is that this Christmas from here on, if you haven't already done so, is to establish a relationship with God through the Son. He wants to treat you with grace, to forgive your sins, to take away your guilt, to give you strength for each day. Not just to cope with life, but to actually live it to the fullest. To fill you with hope and joy and peace. This is the meaning of grace. To live in hope in a hopeless world. This is why the Word became flesh. This is why he pitched his tent among us. And this is why we celebrate Christmas. Amen. Let us sing our final song, Silent Night.